Welcome everyone to the 14th episode of The Lucid Truth. Today, I am speaking with Richard Lang. Richard is the author of several books on spirituality, such as Seeing Who You Really Are, and actively teaches the headless way online and at workshops around the world. Thank you for being here with us today, Richard. You're welcome. So, Richard, can you tell us about how the Headless Way was discovered? Yes, of course. Uh, the man who discovered it, uh, if we can put it like that, was called Douglas Harding. He's dead now. He was born at the beginning of the last century. And he grew up in a rather strict Christian sect in uh, the east of England. Uh, he was born in 1909. And... When he was 21, he left this sect. It was too strict for him. In fact, he, uh, he read a paper he wrote, and he read it to the, they were called the Plymouth Brethren, and he read it to mm. them. And his main reason for leaving was that he couldn't accept that they had the only path to truth just because they said they did. <laughs> and uh, they didn't like that. And uh, so... Uh, his father cut off from him at that point. You know, it was a big deal to leave. And Douglas then, he was training to be an architect in London. And he was a curious person. And he, he just had this curiosity about life and about himself. And uh, he really began forming the question, what am I? Who am I? And he didn't want to just take on board another philosophy from someone who said it was right just because they said it was right, you know. Mm -hmm. And he, he uh, pursued this question, who am I, through science and philosophy. And he recognized that what he was depended on the range of the observer. So if you look at, uh, if you looked at me at, at 10 feet, you'd see Richard. But if you came up to me with instruments, you'd find ourselves. And then you'd even closer find I was molecules and atoms and particles. And if you went away from me, you'd then see London and England and the planet, the star, the galaxy. So this is true of us all. Everyone is like an onion in the sense that they've got layers. And uh, so he was working this out. And um, he then went to India with his wife. He got a job there as an architect. And then the war, the Second World War broke out and he went into the army. But uh, around this time... Uh, he and his inquiry into who he was intensified. It wasn't just a kind of hobby. He was just intensely interested in what he was. He, he, he felt that he'd happened. He, you know, he thought about the fact that he'd happened. And he thought, well, I'm not going to live and die without inquiring into who has happened and, and not just take everyone else's word for it, but look for myself. But the obvious question when you worked out that you're like an onion with layers is what or who is at the center of the layers. And in the early 40s, he recognized that as near as science could get, you were almost nothing. Um, but So it made sense you are a kind of no thing at center, like all the great mystics say you are, in fact. But he couldn't verify it. It was a, an assumption. And then one day, he found in a book a self-portrait by Ernst Mach, who was a physicist. And Ernst Mach 
had drawn a picture of himself from his own point of view, which is headless. He just looked down and drawn his body, and you can't see your head. He drew his nose, huge nose, stretching from the ceiling to the floor. <laughs> so if your listener can close one eye and look at your nose, you'll see that's, that's roughly what Ernst Mark drew. And if you look down at your body, you'll see you don't see your head. And when Douglas saw this, he looked at his own body, like I hope the listener is actually doing, and he noticed, oh, I don't see my head. Ah, that's what I am from my point of view. And this really confirmed what science was telling him, that as science comes all the way up to you, you almost disappear. And then Douglas looked at zero, what he was from his own point of view, and he, he thought he found he was zero. And uh, the, from then on, this was not a big wow in a way. It was just a, a cool observation. But he'd been working on this question for 10 years. And he knew that he'd found what he was looking for. And uh, after that, he spent you know, some years writing another book, Returned to England After the War. And the book, The Hierarchy of Heaven and Earth, was published in 1952 which C.S. Lewis, who wrote the Narnia books, he said, I've never, he said, this is a work of the highest genius, and it is a fantastic book. And after that, he went back into architecture. Then in the, in the, uh, in 1961, he wrote On Having No Head, which is his well-known popular book. And in the late 60s, he developed his experiments, early, late 60s, 19, early 70s. And the experiments are called experiments because his approach was scientific, really. And he, uh, he said, well, who am I? What am I? This is important to, to ask this question. Uh, well, partly it's just curiosity. But if you are making a mistake about what you are, that's liable to you know, sort of mess your life up. If you want, if you want to... Um, hammer a nail in, but you get a saw, you're, you're not going to do any, you know, you're going to do yourself some harm. So you really need the right tool for the job, and you, and you need to be aware of who you really are, what your identity is, in order to live a good life, you know, not to be making a mistake. So that's a reason for looking. And, of course, all the great mystics say that you're not, you know, that you are, you are something, there's a treasure inside. So Douglas's hypothesis, which is a scientific term, is that you're not at zero distance what you look like at 10 feet, say. You're not what you look like. And here are a whole load of experiments for you to test this. And uh, all the experiments are, ob you know, observation, really, like any experiment is. So if you now, uh, someone says, well, what are you? Well, you look for yourself. You can't see your face. You can't see your head. And uh, from your own point of view, this is the first person point of view, you're very different from what you look like in the mirror and to others. So Douglas, uh, that's quite a long introduction to that, but that is what Douglas discovered, his true nature, which is what it's like to be first person, which is very, very different from what you look like in the mirror, which is what you look like at a few feet or what you look like to others. And uh, this is awakening to your true nature. All right, that's, that's, uh, that was a long talk, wasn't it? <laughs> Thank you, Richard. 
I think before we go into talking about headlessness, it would be nice if you took myself and the listener through one of these experiments. All right. Well, uh, this is looking to see what it's like to be you. And uh, we'll start visually. And then uh, if we've got a few minutes here, I expect we have, we can do eyes closed. But you, the the listener really has to do these. It's not. It's no good just listening to me talking about it. And you've got to sort of do it and be prepared to do something that people would think is normally quite silly. Um, but um, in order to to, to uh, take a fresh look at yourself, you've got to put aside what what society is saying. And uh, how do you do that? Well. What I'm going to ask the, I mean, the, the, the simplest one is just notice you can't see your face. But what are you at center? What are you at zero? Well, that's the question. What am I really? Who am I in my own experience now? So I can't rely on what Richard says or what Isaac said or anyone. I have to look for myself. And in order to do that, I'm going to ask you, First to look at things and then look at yourself. And in order to help you direct your attention, this is the bit that I, I would like you to do, is I want you to point at something in front of you. And the reason for pointing is you're directing your attention. Attention. That's all it is. And notice what you're pointing at. I hope you're doing it. You're looking down along your finger at something. What you're pointing at has got, it's a thing. Got color and shape and so on. Now point at, say, your hand, and you can see color and shape there. That's looking out at things. At this range, it's a hand. Now I want you to turn your finger round and point back at where others see your face. So this is the bit that, you know, don't be embarrassed, just do it. It's worth it. Point back at where others see your face and notice what you see, it because no one else is your side of your finger, so only you are there. Only you can see. Well, what I see is no face, no shape, no movement, no color. Just, uh, it's a non-verbal experience, but I would say it's like space, transparency, openness, see? Now, you're, you're directing your attention to the place you're looking out of. And uh, it's different from anywhere else. There's no thing here. Now, if you use your other hand, it's a bit complicated to do it on audio, but use your other hand at the same time to point out. You've got the first finger pointing back at your no face and the second finger pointing out at things. That's two-way attention, two-way pointing. So this space that you're looking out of in the outward direction is full of everything. So th there's one or two things probably to say about this experience. First of all, it's not a feeling. People say, well, I, I don't feel anything. Exactly. Uh, there's, it, this is a kind of non-experience. Uh, I, I, it's not a wow, it's not anything. And then people might say, well, it doesn't mean anything to me. Well, that is fine too. You see, just be patient. If you discovered a new metal, you would say, well, I, I have no idea what I can do with that. So, you know, drop it. No, you've got to you've got to be patient and explore what you can do with the metal. Well, it's the same with this weird non-experience. Um, the the thing is that I would say that it's 
it's true. When I look here where I am, there's no thing here, awareness. Not a feeling, not a thought, just open space. But when I look out, it's full of the whole world, and everything is in it. Um, so anyway, we can explore more, I suppose, the, the, the usefulness and meaning of it. But the main thing I, I want to just uh, clarify right now, before we go on with other experiments, is it doesn't have to mean anything to you. It doesn't have to feel anything. It, is it true that when, you know, put aside what you know about yourself, your face, your head, your everything, and just look. So that's a starter, Isaac. I can go on. It's, it, it, uh, shall I just go on a bit more with more experiments? Absolutely. I would love that. Okay. All right. Well, it's, uh, I hope your listener will get a feel for the fact that this is an adventure. And this is as if you landed on a new planet and you're looking around for the first time. And so really, you, you, if you're on a new planet, you haven't been there before, so you've no preconceptions, hopefully, and you you would notice things that you wouldn't notice if you had preconceptions. So, I want you to be aware, first of all, of what you're experiencing visually, and then we'll go into sound and sensation and things. So, I've got... I've, I've um, sort of uh, suggested the two-way pointing, the view in and the view out. The view in is to no face, no color, no shape. The view out is to things, colors and shapes and movement. Now, the view out is your field of view. And I mean that literally, just what you're seeing. But I want you to notice some things about this. This is as if you've landed on a new planet. If you look at any two objects within the field of view, you can compare them for size. So one is bigger or smaller, or I suppose they could be the same size. But it's relative. And you one thing can be smaller than something else, but bigger than something else, because you can compare it. Now I'd like the listener and you, Isaac, and myself, to look at the whole field of view. So you just got to just wide-eyed view. Just the whole field of view. How big is it? Well, you see, there isn't a second one on the right to compare it with. You only experience one view. You hear about mine, you hear about other people's, but you only experience one. It's single. So I can't say how big it is. This is, you know, being on a new planet. Oh, there's only one. Mm -hmm. Right? I mean, terribly simple. But you can't say, I mean, it, how wide is the field of view? Well, you, this is, it's as wide as east is from west, I suppose. I mean, I can't say. Now, the next thing to notice is that if you look at any object within the view, it's got a boundary and there's something all the way around it. It's inside an environment. Now, I want you to look at the whole view and you'll notice how... It's most in focus in the middle, and then it gets vaguer and vaguer until it fades out. Now, is there anything beyond that faded edge, or whatever you want to call it? You know, is, it, is the whole view inside something bigger? Well, no. It's not inside anything. Not for, you know, don't, not going by memory, 
you're on a new planet, you're looking to see what it's like. No one can tell you. You've got to got to look for yourself. Well, I say it's it's floating in nothing, or it's in awareness. If I point in at this space, I call this awareness or consciousness. You can call it what you like. But that consciousness, when you point in, doesn't have a name or a location or a size, and it has this whole view in it. It's not separate from the view. So you could say, uh, I'm just using words here to, to try and describe the experience, that the whole view is just floating in consciousness. Not in my consciousness, just consciousness. All right, so you can't say how big it is, and it's not inside anything. I mean, the third thing you could ask is, how far away is it? If you look at an object within the view, you can measure how far it is from something else because there's a distance between two things. But when you look at the whole view, how far away is it from you? Well, there's nowhere to measure from. You know, you're looking out of open space. All right, so now I want the listener and, and you, Isaac, and I'll do it too, close your eyes. Now, my experience is the world has just disappeared. It's just darkness. Now open your eyes. The world reappears in this space, in consciousness. Now that, you see, is something that you're probably very familiar with as a child. You know, close your eyes, make the world disappear. Open your eyes, make it reappear. But that is your first-person experience. I mean, you understand that for others, you're just closing your eyes and nothing happens to the world. But the first person which is what we're exploring, and hopefully we're not coming to it with preconceptions and saying, oh, it can't be like that. So I, the thing about exploring what it's like to be first person is it's very, very different from, being, from your appearance, from what you've been told you are. And uh, when you discover that how different it is, it's no good dismissing it because it's not what you believe. Uh, that, that's not good, you know, that's just going by what you've been told. All right, so eyes closed, and look at the darkness, so to speak. How big is it? Well, the same as the field of view, there isn't a second. So I can't say how big it is. We're told it's tiny, that it's in our head. But first person, no head, you see, just darkness in consciousness. And is it inside anything? Well, we're told it's somewhere in our brain. Well, all right, I don't find a brain, I don't find a container, it's in consciousness. And how far away is it? Well, nowhere to measure from, see. Now, I would say this is true of all the senses. So you go to the to uh, sounds, see, you hear my voice coming and going, other sounds, see, and some of that you can compare sounds. So some are louder than others, some are human, some are mechanical, all of that. But if I can put it like this, how big is the whole field of sound? How big is it? Well, all the sounds are within it. You can't compare it. It's single. Like the darkness, it's single. And is this field of sound inside anything? Well... I don't find it, you know, in a kind of, you know, box or in in my head, or it's just happening 
in consciousness, in the silence. And the sounds come out of the silence and go back into the silence. See? And then I take my attention to my body sensations and uh, you can identify different sensations and, and label them, your foot, you know, your elbow. But if the labeling it is a kind of map, very useful map. But imagine you'd just been born, you know, you're an infant. You wouldn't have the map, you'd just have the sensations. Well, that's what I'm asking you to pay attention to, just the, the sensations. The map is there, but it's not, not the territory, as they say. Now, how big is the whole field of sensation? In, a, in other words, how big are you? Well, there isn't a second field of sensation, just single. And uh, are these sensations inside anything? You have to just uh, kind of be innocent and just, well, I don't find them inside anything. In other words, are you inside anything? How big are you now? How big is your consciousness? Well, I don't find a second one to compare myself with. In my own experience, there's only one consciousness. And this is, if you also just be aware of your thoughts and feelings. I mean, this is a very radically different way of appreciating what you are. I mean, you imagine the number three. Well, where did that come from? Or imagine, you know, just think of the face of a friend. How do you do that? Where does that come from? Did you see it come out of your brain? Or does it pop up out of no mind, out of emptiness, you see? I say it just comes magically out of nowhere. You know, think of the name of a planet. Or, you know, just your thoughts are, are arriving out of nothing all the time and going back in. Same with feelings. And you can, just as you ask, how big is the darkness or the sounds or the sensations? How big is your mind? How big are all these you know, thoughts and feelings? Well, there isn't a second, see. So now if you open your eyes, uh, I would say nothing changes essentially. There's, you, you don't, we'll talk about, uh, you know, the, the, talking, you know, me and you and self and other and all of that. But my first person experience is there's only one consciousness and everything is in it, no matter whether I've got my eyes open or closed. And this really uh, is, you see, a kind of science. It's, it's, you have science of objects, what things are at various ranges. You study a star, you study a stone, you study a cell. Now study yourself. See, to, now to look at what you are, pay attention to what you are. Are you what others see you to be? You see, so I know I'm Richard at, that, at a certain range, but at zero, I'm not. I'm space for the world. And uh, this, this, these two go together. So it, it might be a good moment just to talk about the four stages, Isaac. What do you think? Um, I think that's a great idea. The four stages of the development of life, as described in your book and Harding's book, yeah, just a, a way, a map of our lives, of, of how we develop, because it, it helps us understand 
how we uh, become aware of ourselves as individuals and the place of being aware of ourselves as the capacity for the world. So there are four stages, baby, child, adults here. I hope your listener is writing all this down, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) Me too. (laughs) No, I hope you're not. I hope the listener is actually just enjoying the ride and being open-minded and flexible and just, you know, being being open and, and willing to experiment, really. All right, so the baby, um, when you were a baby, you see, the listener, you, you, had no, you were pre-verbal. You had no idea what you looked like. You're just uh, looking out of your single eye. You look in the mirror, that's not you. It's just another face out there. Um, you're space for the world without thinking of it like that. Uh, you're at large. That's the first stage, you see. The second stage is the child. Well, from the beginning of your life, your parents start reflecting back to you that you're a baby or an infant or a child. And they are reflecting back what you look like at several feet. Now, what you look like at zero is no thing full of the world, space of the world, but what you look at look like from a few feet away is a very special, unique person. But you don't know that until you start to get the feedback. And mum and dad put a mirror in front of you and say, look, that's what you are. Well, you can't see that where you are. You see it over there in the mirror. So what you, what you learn to do, and um, this is just uh, in, involves just a bit of con- you know focus really for the listeners, unless you've actually got a mirror, which would be good. But you look in the mirror, and you're taught to sort of reach into the mirror in your imagination, grab that face, pull it out. Flip it the other way around because it's facing the wrong way. So you'll imagine this. See, you're aiming to put this face on because your parents say that you can't see your face, but we can. And where you see no face, you've got a face, you, you know, believers. And that's the one in the mirror that is there. You're behind a face. You can't see it. So reach in, pull it out, flip it the other way around, make it bigger and put it on. Now, you can't do that, but you imagine your face on your emptiness above your shoulders. And you imagine, you see, you've got all these sensations you call your face. But a babe, for a baby, that's not a face. They're just part of the view, all these sensations. But you learn to marry the image. You know, you look at the mouth there, and you've got the sensation of the mouth here, which has no shape or color or location. And you marry the image so that you know where to put your food. You sort of imagine that image out there over here. And so growing up, you learn to learn about what you look like and learn to imagine that map, you know, your your back, your elbow, your head, your whole body. You learn to become self-conscious and uh, think of yourself as inside that body and behind that face, which you don't actually, you know, you're not from your point of view. But in order to join in in society, you have to, to become aware of that and take responsibility for that and say, well, this is me and these are my words and these are my actions and I'm separate from you face to face. So when you look at someone as a baby, you have no idea of your own face, you've got sensations, but you're just open for the other face. When you're a child, you're learning to imagine being face to face, confront 
the visible face there with the imagined face here. So by the time you're at the third stage of the adult, you're totally convinced that you've got a face here, that you confront others face to face. You look in the mirror, that's you. Uh, you so that's the third stage. And you've really uh, forgotten about and repressed awareness of your spacious first personhood. You've become a third person, an object. And this is just becomes, you know, deeply conditioned into us, and, and we just assume that we're objects, we're people. So the thing is that um, that's the third stage, and potentially there's a fourth stage, which quite a lot of people don't know about, which is rediscovering your first personhood, what it's like to be you, as opposed to what it's like, you know, it, what you are for others. You've got what your others for going. You operate as if you're a person, you, you know, automatically. Now, I'm saying, as well as being aware of that, which is great, being self-conscious, aware of yourself as an individual, is recognizing that's what you are for others. What you are for yourself is this headless, open space full of everything. Now, uh, this is true, I would say, but for testing, but if you start to become aware of this in your life, it is just so supportive. You know, it, is, it, it reconnects you with the world and with people. For example, if you're with people now, you can notice it's face to no face. And your sensations don't get in the, in the way of the other person. They're just part of the view. So I could say, when I'm looking at you, I have your face instead of my own. I'm space for you, you're space for me. I'm looking out of this single eye, everything is in me. Now that is just, you know, that is, to live this. At the same time, aware that you're just a person in the world, you know, two sides to yourself. This, this is just a new way of living, really. Yeah. So the experiments, and there are lots on the website, and lots of, you know, YouTube videos and books and, you know, a lot for free on the YouTube channel and on our website, headless.org. Experiments get you to test this out to see if it's true. You know, that, you know, that Richard isn't trying to kid you. Or, <laughs> uh, it, this is, the point is, look for yourself. But take, you know, if you're interested, if you realize that First of all, the great mystics have said that there's a great treasure inside you, that you are the one, that God is inside you, or Buddha nature, that that is you, and that if you don't become aware of this, you're missing out big time. And the purpose of life is to awake, you know, go through this journey of forgetting who you are and then reawakening to who you are. And the best bit comes when you start to reawaken to who you are. So if you... If you get that and are interested in the truth and not just going through your life, not inquiring and not uh, and just taking for granted and accepting what everyone tells you you are without looking for yourself, well, so be it. But that's not me. I, you know, and when these experiments are way, ways in which you can just uh, check out what you are. And for example, one of them is a turning one. You point back at your nose face and you turn round. And you see you don't move. The, the world turns. From the outside you're turning and the room is still. 
But on the inside, you're still, and the world is turning. Now that, you can, you know, walking down the street, I don't walk down the street. The street moves through me. Driving in my car, I don't drive from A to B. I'm still, and B comes to me. This is uh, relaxing, this is true, this is fun, this is interesting. And the big one, of course, is being face to no face. This is love. You're, you see that you are built open for others and for the world. Yep. And this, my voice now, Isaac, is in your awareness, right? In your consciousness, you see. You're, you're, you're the silence in which my voice is happening, like the listener. All right. Are you still there? <laughs> yes, yes. I I agree with you. I think headlessness can increase your empathy for others in a way that's not usually possible. Because by seeing what you are, you can see what others are. Yes. And you can understand them in a way you couldn't before by being the space for them to truly be. It's yeah. like you said in your book, the void is identical in all and quite literally nothing is between us right i think that's exactly. a very good way to connect with other people well i mean that it's the same nothing that we're we're talking about isn't it isaac uh, you, it doesn't have isaac's name on it or richard's name or address and you know yes. it, your nothing isn't in america and mine's in england it's just not you can't locate or divide it like that so we we are we understand how we're different. We don't know each other as people, you know, all of that. But as who we really are, there's nothing between us, as you say. There's no there's no distance. There's no 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 difference. So you you you're a unique individual, different, separate, and uh, here is this one consciousness that we more than share. We are wonderful. You see, wonderful. Yeah. Yes. And this space really is infinite. There's nothing yeah. to compare it to. I know. Where, where are the edges? I there, know. There are nowhere. <laughs> I know. I know. It, it, you never get used to it. Yes, I've been, uh, I was introduced to this 50 years ago. 50, five zero. And it is more and more surprising all the time. You know that? Just what you say. It's got no edges. It. I mean, how can you get used to that? <laughs> yes, exactly. It's a novel experience every time you see it. it and is. The, the emptiness, I truly think the emptiness is important. If the mind was already full, let's say you were hearing a loud song all the time, right. there would be nothing with which to hear. There would right. be nothing the world could fit inside of. Yes. A con it's a container infinite in scope ready to hold all that is, and all of this is within you. Well, exactly, you see, exactly. I know, yes. Yes, it's very nice. I heard it put well um, during a meditation that your consciousness is not inside your head. Your head is inside your consciousness. <laughs> well, yes, of course. And you see, the, the thing is uh, that this experience is the experience of, of yourself. So you, you can't get it wrong. Uh, and it is a nonverbal experience. I'm aware of this space in which my head and everything is happening, as it were. But it's essentially a nonverbal experience. 
And so there is not a right way of thinking about it or responding to it. There is your way and my way and, and anyone's way. So this gets rid of the idea that there are some are better at it than others or there's a hierarchy. You can't get better at nothing. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> and you can't get worse. You, right. you can't do it wrong. <laughs> yes, it's impossible. Yeah. Um, I, I liked it. I thought you phrased it really well when you said it's not from here to there, but from there to here. Okay. You're well, not you going see. anywhere else. No, no. Well, there's an example, you see, of, of you connecting with a particular way of, see, of saying it, because someone else might not get that. And it doesn't matter. You see, it really doesn't matter. These are just different ways of describing this experience that we've all got. And you see, I'm afraid that in the meditation world, the idea of enlightenment is given, you know, put up on a pedestal and only a few people get it. And if you claim to get it, you're, you're you know, you're, you're being boastful or something, you know, you can't have it. And so people do, and I, I talk to them, you know, Often people going off on retreat hoping to get it, you know, and uh, all anxious that they won't. And the joke is you're looking out of it and you are it and you can't get it wrong. And this does undermine this whole program and project and business of enlightenment. And enlightenment is really just being enlightened to what you are and uh, you can look right now. I mean, that's just point back at where others see your face. That's what I'm talking about. So well, I don't feel anything. No, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. If you felt something here, that would get in the way and then you'd lose it. <laughs> right, right. If an internal song was playing in your head, you yeah. couldn't hear anything. No, that's right. Yeah. So I agree too. The enlightenment business is kind of missing the point. Waiting if you're waiting for happiness and fulfillment, it's a protracted effort because everything you've ever wanted is within you and it's right on the surface. Well, uh, there you are, you see. That's where your way of putting it, you see. Uh, and you, the, the kind of confusing thing is, is that people think that what they're looking for is happiness. Well, I understand that. And, you know, we want, we want to be happy and all of that. But, in terms of who you really are, the experience of who you really are is not happiness. Uh, it's a bit of a shock to people. They think, well, why would I want that? You see, it's nothing, no thing. It's a non-experience. Uh, it's unique because everything else has got content. Everything's But this experience of who you are, the place you're looking out of, your single eye, the place you are pointing at, the, 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 what is listening to this voice is no thing. And people think, oh, well, well, what is the point of that? You know, it's got no feeling, no quality. Uh, you know, it, it, uh, it's not sort of happiness. No, but it is what you are. Now, uh, if you can, I assure you, if you can nevertheless attend to it, even if you think, well, I, I can't see what this is going to do to me, but I can see it's true. Then, then stay with that, and it will deliver everything you you need. Maybe not what you want, but this is for testing, of course. This is for testing. But I do, I 
I, it seems to me that the thing that, that you know, kind of that people think is, oh, I don't feel anything. No, no, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> but what is this? You see, it's not just nothing like it's awareness. You're self-evidently aware and you're full of everything. You know, you're looking out of your single eye. Where's the dividing line between this nothingness and the the tree there or the gray sky here in London, you know? Uh, where, where There's no dividing line. Everything is within you. And everything, my voice is not, for me, coming out of my mouth. It's coming out of nowhere. This is magic, you know? Uh, I mean, really, when you start to pay attention, you don't know how you do anything. <laughs> yes. I mean, how do you open and close your hand? You know, you do it, but how do you do it? I don't know. You know, you, now you, you tidy up the kitchen. Do you know in what order you're going to do it? it? It unfolds, you know. Now, this is, the, this is how it always has been, but you're appreciating that this is flowing from this mysterious awareness that you are, this mysterious no-thing. And it's a life of spontaneity and creativity and interest and fun and you know well here's another thing you see because people think that once you find out who you really are experience who you really are and go on experiencing then you won't have problems or stress well look at your hand you see and notice your arm and your arm comes back to your shoulder and then disappears into the void here into the first person now you've got you can see your arm coming out of the emptiness here, and you've got sensations. Now, make your hand into a fist, you see. So your hand is tense now. Now, does the space you're looking out of get tense? No. No. <laughs> so just as it's face there to no face here, it's tension there, stress to no stress. So relax your hand. So uh, does... The freedom from stress is, is here, but it doesn't mean, say, you don't experience stress there. Life is full of stress and problems and difficulties and, the, you know, things not going according to plan. But you're looking out of this place that is free of stress and problems. Now, does that make a difference to be aware of this as you're going through life? It does. You've got to test this. But... You know, this is it's not just a kind of dead space. It's awareness. It's the source, I would say. So it's immensely creative. And, uh, yes, worth having in the picture. <laughs> I agree. It's, um, it's like a mirror. It's like a mirror that doesn't yes. get dirty when it yes. reflects dirty things. Right. Very good. You don't, you don't blame the mirror for being dirty when it reflects something that isn't you know, like dirt or something like that. And so if you view negative emotions the same way, you can see that you're the space that the negativity is being entertained in. And you can use that to break the spell of that energy well, when you, you remember go. to see. Yes, you see, perfect. And this is, you see, this isn't a program to follow. This is a, an adventure and research and discovery. And there you are, you see, you're saying, well... Uh, uh, test this out in a situation and, and find out whether or not it helps you break that pattern or something. Well, that's for testing, you see. The other thing is, like, the mirror is a very powerful 
thing. And growing up, we learned to look in it and identify with the face there, which, I've, as I've said earlier, you sort of pl pluck the image in your imagination from the mirror and put it on, and then go around as if you're behind that thing. Now, the image in the mirror that you pluck in your imagination and put on is imperfect. <laughs> Unless you're different from the rest of us, of course. But anyway, mine is imperfect. And, and when I look in the mirror, you know, usually I'm disappointed. Uh, and the, the, the face there is, is getting older. And uh, so if I pluck that if I pluck that face and pretend to put it on, I'm getting older and I'm imperfect and it's depressing, you see. Now, actually, when you look, this is where the, the, the experiment comes in and the testing. When you look in the mirror, notice you, the face is there. You don't have one on the near side of the mirror. You're open space. You're like the mirror you're talking about that doesn't get affected by the face there. In fact, it, there in the face is your human appearance. And this side, the place you're looking out of where you are, is this divine clarity, openness. You know. So th this is a remedy for the uh, kind of depression that the mirror can give to people. You know, that when you look in there and you're not as you want to be. Uh, you, 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 the truth is your appearance is there. And here is your reality, which is this clear mirror uh, that is always well and, and perfect in a way. Now, that doesn't then improve your face, you know, uh, but it places it uh, and like placing the stress. And if you actually practice this and live it so that as you, you know, you get more and more into the habit when you look in the mirror of seeing that you're not like that here. You are there, and that's a special face, that's your face, but here you're not. That frees you, you know, and I think your face probably benefits anyway, your appearance, because you're not kind of fussing over it as you might have been doing. Yeah. Yes, I think um, that's a great way of putting it. I like, I like changing the frame of how people look at life to see it in a more meaningful way. Um, Douglas Harding said it very well when he said, why should existence itself exist? What reality is, isn't as important as that reality is. The fact that this miracle has been achieved should give us great comfort, as after this, what is impossible? Well, there you go, you see. that That is someone stepping back and recognizing that they are. And this is something that most of us don't do in our busy lives. We get on with what we're doing and who we are. And we don't stop and say, wow, I am. I am. Or, you know, who am I? What I am. Well, when you do that and recognize that, if, you know, here, as Douglas says, if you here's a way of thinking about it, that, I need not have been, but I am. So how wonderful is that? I mean, everything depends on that. So this basic appreciation that you are. And then, of course, when you look to see what you are, you're not just the one in the mirror. You are this one consciousness that somehow is. Now, you are that consciousness. Now, you don't know 
what you are. So the consciousness doesn't know what it is. You don't know where you came from as this consciousness. You don't know how you manage to happen, but you are. You know that's the that's the basic reality. You, what you're looking at might be a dream, but the fact that you're looking is not a dream. The fact that you are conscious is just self-evident. Now, this is when you get a taste for it. You say, "Wow, that that is extraordinary." This is the one saying, "I am." I don't know how I came to be. You know, the whole universe is sort of flowing out of me. I don't know how I do that. You know, and it's functioning. You know how amazing I am. You know, not Richard. How amazing is the one within me? You know, now if I if I can't trust that, who can I trust? You know, I mean, it's just. Yes. <laughs> of course, some people, you know, you point this out and they say, "Oh, that's great. What what what's on TV tonight?" <laughs> <laughs> you know, right, but that that I think there's a place for that. You see, and that's just amazing, really, to me. But uh, there's a place for it. Yeah. Yes, I agree. I think um I think this is a nice thought experiment that helps. Imagine if there was no life in the universe, just a bunch of rocks hitting each other for infinity. There would be no seeing. There would be no consciousness to appreciate all that is, and it so would be meaningless. But the fact that there is this emptiness that can hold the world, it's a true miracle. It's the only thing that could mean anything. Yeah, but I, I mean, when you, you just can't do that. It just, it's, it's self kind of contradictory because you, if you're imagining just rocks, you're imagining. So there's, <laughs> you know, there's the consciousness, right? Yes, that's <laughs> funny. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I saw a quote in your book, um, seeing who you really are. It said, I am not at home in the universe. The universe is at home in me. All right. Well, you see, check it out. Um, one way, a very simple way of checking this out is that uh, if you're inside, you know, if you're in a room, notice you can't see all four walls, all of them. Usually you can only see three and the fourth one is missing because you're looking, you know, it's just as your head is missing, the fourth wall is missing. And instead of that wall, there's wide open space. So if something is in a room, it's surrounded by four walls and a ceiling and a floor. But you're not surrounded. You know, the, the wall on the left fades out into the nothing and the wall on the right fades out and the ceiling fades out into the single eye there, you know, and, uh, and so on. So oh, I'm not in the room. The room is in me. I'm not in the world. The world isn't me. Now, I have a friend who used to be in prison, and he um, wrote a very good book called The Light That I Am. You can get it on Amazon. His name is Ambershell. And he came across seeing who you are when he was in prison, and he got it. And in that book, he's got a, a – I mean, basically, he realized that although, you know, for others he was in prison, for him he wasn't. Prison was in him. Oh, now, right. Now he couldn't leave, but inwardly he was not. He, inwardly he was free, just as we all are. You see. Now, did that make a difference? Well, he wrote an essay, this book, "The Light That I Am," which I highly recommend. Uh, he um, is a, a collection of essays, and one of them is called Two Days." And in this uh, essay, he describes a day in prison. 
And the first half is the first day, but it's the day, is the day experienced not aware of who you are, thinking you're a thing. And you get up and there's loud noises and you're told what to do and then someone pushes you around and it's noise all the time and, you know, you're a thing being bumped around and told what to do and you don't have a minute to yourself. And Right, that's the first day. First part of the essay. The second part of the essay is exactly the same day described. Well, I open my eyes, the cell appears in me, the sounds appear in me, but do not disturb the emptiness. Um, the 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 per, the people you know in the chow hall or whatever you call it, I have their faces instead of my own. I'm not in prison. I'm walking down the corridor, but I'm not. The corridor is walking through me. I'm still. Now that is a different day. <laughs> wow! Yeah. Now, do you you could say it? It's um, you know, your life. One life is to live as if you are your appearance only, and you're being bumped around and face to face and confronting everything, and people are not doing what you want. You see, and it, it loud noises and all. Or your life could be, I am space for the world. Everyone's face is my own. You know, I don't move through. The, the world, the world moves through me. I'm not inside this room. This room is in me. Does it mean that, you know, did it mean for him that he was suddenly free, got out of prison? No. Prison was in him, though. You know, so life is full of problems. But see that they're in you. You're not caught up. You're really not. But you, this is, you know, you, you don't just sort of see it and then it's done. You've got to practice and explore it and draw on it. And it is challenging. You know, no one's saying it's easy. But this is a different kind of life. Yeah. Yes, it's like it's put in on having no head. Um, what a way to travel to find the thing that has been with us the entire time. Yes. Yes. It's very funny how it can be such a long search for something that's always been right on the surface. Well, you have a... to lose it to be yeah. able to appreciate it. That's right. Well, well, that's the story in the Bible of the prodigal son who goes, leaves home and goes to Egypt or the far country and forgets home. And then finally, you know, uh, is in a bad way and returns home. And uh, the father at home throws a party and the elder brother doesn't get the party because he never left. So you only really appreciate home when you've been away from it, you know, just as ah. you Yes, you only appreciate your own country if you've traveled and you come back and you see it with fresh eyes because you've got something to compare it with. Well, it's the same with who you really are. If, if, you, if, if you stayed in the sort of original state of the baby, you wouldn't know anything else. and It, 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 it wouldn't have the same meaning for you now that you've forgotten it and then you return to it. And I think that we forget it every day and return to it every day. You know, it, it, it's, this is the, the way that um, it, it works. But it, it means that uh, we rediscover what it means again and again in new ways. Yeah. Yes. I, um, I really think it's such a useful practice. I've been thinking about headlessness for about two months, not very long, but I thought of an experiment idea I wanted to share with you. Kind of see what you thought. Yeah. So, okay. So you know those pictures that come out of like a Polaroid camera? 
they just like come right out. They're little squares. Yes. So take a picture like that and put it directly in front of you. A a, a printed picture. And, picture what? Um, let's say a mountain. Okay. Um, but it could really be anything. And look at this picture and notice how it has depth. It, you can see the depth of the picture, but it's still a single frame. Okay. The distance is only an illusion of the mind, with the entire surface being one. Now, move the picture, but view your visual field in the same sense. Hmm. There is no distance. Yeah. It is all appearing within this space of consciousness. It's all one view. Regardless yeah. of if you are looking at something big or small... This space contains it, unchanging, and yet still always changing. Yes. Well, no, I like that very much. Yes. Yes. The, the view, the whole view is like a picture. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And you no, move just... the picture and you still see it. Yes. In the same way. Yes. Well, there you go. Lovely. Yeah. Very good. Awesome. The, uh, it reminds me of a quote by Eckhart. The outward man is a swinging door. The inner man is the still hinge. Yes, there you go. Yeah, I think that's a good image. Yeah. Yes, I'm glad you like it. So I think that that gives us a good background on what headlessness is and how you can see the meaning of life through it. I'd like to talk to you about what the self is and what it means to kind of how it can make sense. So the historical Buddha himself identified attachment to the egocentric self to be the root of all suffering, the Durka. And so I think this version of the self is an illusion. So we have to understand what the self is not to understand what the self is. Yes. Well, okay. Um, I, I took, take the view, the, the developmental view, you see, when you're a baby, you're headless and you don't know what you are or who you are and you've no language yet, no sense of self and other. And, or, or you know, certainly no developed sense of it. And through language as you're growing up, you learn to see yourself as others see you. You learn to imagine what you look like at three feet, ten feet, which is a person. And you look in the mirror, and there's that image. And you learn to sort of put it on. So that's what they call identification. Uh, now, that is absolutely vital to do, because you, you can't function in society, of course. You know, you have no idea who you are if you don't do that. So we all do that growing up. So we all become aware, self-conscious, which is, in these terms, being aware of what you look like from a certain range. And, of course, you then develop that and become aware of what you look like at closer ranges. You have to, you know, that you're made of organs and the, you, these are made of cells, you know, and that your your body is part of a society which is moving, stepping back, which is part of a country and a planet, you know. So we don't think of these as different, you know, as myself, but it is. It, it, you could do. You could say, well... I am Richard, but I'm also the planet, 
And I am, you know, I identify with London. I support London. I support England. I support this planet. We're invaded by Mars, you know. So this is, once you see that at center you're nothing, it it unties you from being fixed just on the one in the mirror. And you realize, oh, my reality is this nothing, which you could say is my true self. Which is yes. full of, yeah, my, which is true of everything. But I've got these other intermediate selves which I need and function with, you know, that uh, my, my human individual, my family, my country, my planet, my cells, you know. Now, uh, th- this is a, a new way of thinking about what you are, but it makes sense. It, uh, now, is identifying with Richard, uh, you know, like the Buddha said, a cause of suffering? Well, of course it is. <laughs> You know, yes. You know, life is suffering, and it's not wrong. Uh, but l- what you are doing, just as it's face there to no face here, it's suffering there to no suffering here, like it was the tense hand to no tension here. And you won't get rid of suffering, but you can place it. You know, you won't get rid of stress, but you can place it and see that you're not stressed. The stress is in in you that you're not suffering, the suffering is in you. Now, this is meditation. You don't learn it, you, you attend. Uh, and, it's not, and it's not always easy, but that is, uh, you know, that's paying attention to the way things are set up. So, you see, I love having a self. I love having, have, have all kind, you know, being, having different layers to myself. I, I think this is wonderful. And I can say that because I'm aware of looking out of this, my true self, which includes everything and like the mirror, you know. Yeah. Yes. You have a, I like framing it this way. You have a core self and this is your first dimensional self, the headless self. And this is just yourself as open consciousness, the empty container for everything that is free from being defined by its contents. Yeah. And then you have your whole self, your three-dimensional self, the self you are for others, and you can improve this self by realizing who you really are as the first person. And I think a a balance is key. It's like Douglas said about stage four of the balanced life, private as well as as public, and public as well as private. Yes, that's right. Two sides. Yes. When you find out who you are, you you don't throw away your identification with being a person i mean you've worked hard for that and you need that you know and it does not get in the way it's it it helps you be aware of your true self it's a kind of sounding board yeah yes it's um uh, uh, to quote douglas again total self-loss is total self-fulfillment this is how you get your way at last by stopping all pretense and being yourself yes well there you go you see so this is very natural, and what we're talking about is what we all are, your listener as well, and your listener will be thinking about differently and feeling different, have different realizations about it. Of course you would, and you, you won't have the same as me or Isaac or, or anyone else. Uh, and uh, my role here is to reassure you, if I can, that that is the way it is. That's fine. You've got the basic experience, which is kind of non-experience. Point back at your no face. There it is. See, uh, be aware of your single eye. 
close your eyes, how big are you? You know, it is accessible. It's, it is available. And you can't do it wrong. But you will think about it and react to it differently. Uh, and that, that is the way it is. And, and so there isn't, uh, you know, we're not really talking about something that you haven't got. We're talking about what you've got, but we're we're sharing our different responses to it, and that's all it is. You know, it, uh, the the thing itself, the no thing itself, is nearer to you than your breathing. And uh, if you, you know, as I've said, if you think, well, I, I so what? I don't feel anything. Exactly. Don't be fooled by that. That is it. Uh, it is deceptive. It, it you know. But it's the truth, you see, I'd said. You can verify it now. It's the place you're looking out of. I'm looking out of nothing into, well, the sky's cleared a bit. It's a bit blue and sunny now. So, uh, you know, the view out is always changing. Uh, but the place we're looking from is the same because it's got no one's name on it and no one's nationality uh, or address. And that this is what we all have in common. And this brings us together. And uh, here we are one. There we're many. Here we're one. And so I say to the listener, well, uh, wonderful to be you, you know, to share this one consciousness. You've got a very different view out, different reactions, but there's only one consciousness in my experience. And I'm celebrating that uni union and unity with, with the listener and with you, Isaac, and with everyone, really. Yeah. Yes. Uh, reminds me of a quote in your book. Wisdom tells me I am nothing. Love tells me I am everything. And between the two, my life flows. Yeah, it's a lovely way of putting that, that isn't it? Yes. Nizagadatra or someone, I don't know. But yes, yes. You've got, you've got what the most important bit is your true nature, which is no thing full of everything. Yeah. Yes, it's possible to find one's face without losing one's no face. Yes, have both. Have your cake and eat it. <laughs> yes, exactly. So, okay. So I think that that really covered the self like I wanted to, because I wanted to describe how the self is an illusion, how a version of the self is an illusion to understand what the self truly is. And I think we did a very nice job of doing that for our listeners. Yeah, and, I, you know, um, you could say, though, that you can't understand the self, you know, that you can understand things. I could understand Richard a bit, you know, but not much, really, but a bit, you know, I understand this and that. But myself, you know, this emptiness full of everything, I don't know where to begin, you know, it, it, and yet I am it, you see, it, it is real. But the, the, the idea I can understand this is... Uh, yeah, you know, it's just nonsense. <laughs> yeah, it, I think it makes more sense to say you can be it. Yes, well, you can't not be it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that would be quite the um, achievement. <laughs> yeah. It's certainly impossible. I've, I've lost myself. Oh, really? <laughs> yes, it's like talking about uh, space and like imagining the rocks. Like yes. you're still conscious of them. That's right. Yeah. Yes. I think so. Okay. So I think I want to do the same thing with the self that we did. I want to do the same thing with free will that we did with the self. Understanding oh. what free will is not to understand what it is. 
And so in having no head, um, Harding says it's responsible for everything that comes about. It wills nothing and all things. And in the toolkit for testing the incredible hypothesis, he said it is voluntary at will. You can be the view without being lost in it. It's the fifth power, willing all things. You can will whatever is in this space. And I think he's totally right about that. This awareness of first personhood, of headlessness, is the highest degree of freedom that I truly believe one can attain for themselves. It's a kind of meditation that allows you to freely choose what energies within consciousness you want to interact with. While the the consciousness, though, it can't reject anything that comes into it. I mean, it's going to come in. But once it's come in, seeing them as existing within your awareness allows you to restrict your power over you. As capacity for the world, you can make your world what you will it to be more readily. What do you think about that? Well, I think that's your way of putting it, Isaac, and go for it. You know, and I, I think that we'll all put it slightly differently. And in the end, uh, the truth is nonverbal and you can't pin it down. And uh, I, I think that when you get to the level of sort of, you know, absolutes, like people, if they say, you know, there's no free will, everything just happens, you know, I, I think as soon as you say that, you probably say the opposite and that will be equally true. You know? <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, I, and and I think paradox is it's, it definitely has its place. And it, I think if some, if you... If you meet someone who's stuck on one end of a paradox, you know, that's a bit fundamentalist, really. Uh, you know, there there is no free will. Well, you see, the opposite, you could say, is that, well, my anything, anything is not free because it's pushed around by other things. You know, it's conditioned. But no thing is not pushed around. You are not. There's nothing outside you, so there's nothing to push you around. So you're free. Um, but yet, do you, you know, do you actually make a conscious choice that this present moment is going to be the way it is? Well, no, but it's flowing from you. So you could say that it is your will. So these are different ways of, of thinking about it. And I love all that stuff. Um, I, I think that I've learned that, uh, you can't pin it down to one end of a, you know, paradox really, um. So, uh, yes. Completely uh, right. Yeah. You're totally right. I think it both are just frames of reference, and both are true within their own respect. Yes. You know, I, uh, I, I think you could, you, you can look at the great religions, and you can, Douglas Harding did this, his, his idea, and you can sort of see how they're all coming from the same root, which is this experience of who you are, but they express different aspects of it. So, Christianity, you could boil it down to self-giving love, for example. And Hinduism, you could say it's really kind of aware of the one self, one self. Now, uh, Islam, you could say, is about surrender, surrender to the will of God, you know, uh, in Allah or whatever they, it is, you know, that, that all happens, uh, uh, you know, you're not in control, it's God. Now, there's that, you see. But then if you look at Taoism, Taoism uh, uh, and Zen, Taoism is the opposite. It's like freedom, spontaneity. And 
you see, you, there you get a coming out. Uh, you, you, there's not just one end of the spectrum. And this ele- this, there's this recognition that you're not as a person in control, but the one is, is a kind of surrender. And there's a deep freedom in that acceptance of things flowing from the source. But at the same time, there's immense spontaneity and creativity going on and freedom of expression. And uh, that, that is real too, you see. So uh, I wouldn't have one without the other either, either one of them without, you know, the other. Yeah. Yes, it does appear to be a true paradox. The, um, the other day, my friend offered me a drink and um, I was thinking about all of this stuff. And I said, I have no choice whether or not to drink this anymore because I have chosen to drink it. <laughs> and then you decided not to. <laughs> I still did, but that would be Every funny day. if I didn't. <laughs> like, that would be a funny way to prove well, my point. See, I, I mean, it, 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 is, it is, you know, one level, it, it's very all very serious, but another level, it's very amusing, you know. Yes, it is. It can be very funny. I think um, for me... I can see how the belief that free will is an illusion can be good for some people. But for me, I like to say that I am and I do exist rather than saying I happen to have existed. It's like the difference from I am doing versus I am happening. And I feel like maybe certain forms of free will don't exist. But if you view free will existing on a spectrum, you can see how headlessness can make one more free. I think headlessness is a way to give your true self free will, at least in the only <laughs> sense that it could exist. Okay. All right. Well, there you go. <laughs> yes. I think it's so I, absolutely I, I, amazing. I, I have no, no power to argue with that one. <laughs> <laughs> right. So I wanted to ask you, Richard, do you ever dream about being headless? Yes. Yes. I have done. Yes. Yes, I'm very curious what that's like. I'm sure it will come about one of these days. Well, I, I, you know, I think when things touch you deeply, they, you know, they probably come out in your dreams from time to time, and uh, so that's understandable. But you, you know, I just, here's another paradox: the world is very real. At the same time, it's a dream. You know, it's the one dreaming, but it is absolutely real. You, you know, the people who get say, oh, it's just a dream, it's just a, 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 an illusion. I've got half the point, but I'm missing the other one, which is the profound, poignant reality of it as well. Uh, so, uh, yes, you, it, dreaming, and, and the world is a dream, but the world is beautiful. You know, it's like, you know it's a dream, because you can compare it with reality when you wake up. And a dream is different from reality because for lots of reasons, you know, it's different. So you can compare it. You can say it's a dream because you can compare it with reality. But the whole thing, you can't compare. So, you know, you're saying, well, it's not real. And you say, well, compared to what? <laughs> yes, yes. It's just like the the size of the landscape. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yes, I had a dream where I was uh, meditating recently, and in the dream, I actually watched my thoughts, and when I looked at them, they collapsed, and behind the thoughts was just experience, and this experience is like, 
Like, if you imagine having a head and you try to do something, it's going to make it harder to do. (laughs) But if you imagine having no head, that's like when you're taken by the movie of life, when you're in the natural state of flow, when you're really in the present moment, you don't imagine yourself having a head. But you don't imagine yourself not having. You just don't. Yes. You don't have to imagine you've no head I I'm sure you weren't meaning this I imagine you weren't meaning it but you, you just don't you're just empty you know you just it's the way it's given it works yes. it's true yeah yes that would almost interfere in the same way as imagining having yes a head. that's right <laughs> yeah. it's far more kind of simple and natural uh, but you see you, you've really got to have imagined a, a head here before you can see there isn't one um if you know it's the absence of your head is in contrast to the idea you had one and that that is so it's, it's wonderful to imagine your head here because then you get the surprise and and kind of ring of truth oh i actually i don't have one yeah <laughs> yes exactly and then it becomes very once you see it for the first time i think it becomes easier to see afterwards once oh, you notice completely. it after you've lost it well that's the mark of it is once you've seen it uh, it's always accessible i mean you, you can't uh, you know put forward the excuse that you don't know where it is i mean you point at it you know, and you can't put you know you don't have to sort of crank it up it's just immediately 100 percent full power as soon as you look um if you're, you know, that's where people who are not aware of this, they get rather caught up in, in chasing some kind of experience and uh, trying to recreate it or, you know, create it. But this is just look, there it is, 100% on, yeah. Yes, and I, I truly believe that this way of seeing is part of the evolution of human consciousness. This. Well, I mean, it must be because we're aware of it and we're, you know, so here it is. Yes, exactly. <laughs> this, yeah. Finding this balance between your whole third person self and your core first person self, as it, existing as both to reinforce each other, this is the highest degree of freedom of will. You can truly know yourself and in doing so you can be truly free and none of it requires having a head. <laughs> well, I think you need your head, but not at the center. It belongs out there. Yeah. Yes. Yes, yes, exactly. And, and, it, and it's terribly natural and down to earth and normal and loving and uh, practical. And, um, you know, we've all got it and we're sort of kind of waxing lyrical about it, but we've all got this and we all are it. Uh, and. Uh, I mean, I, I'm aware that, you know, that time uh, is there and there's no time here. Um, you know, I look from the timeless into time and I'm not in time. Time is in me. But I'm aware that the time is passing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so uh, we probably start to think about drawing this to a, a, a close in the timeless uh, what do you think? <laughs> I think we've sorted out the universe. Yes, and I hope our listeners try some of the experiments for themselves so they can experience the real freedom of the true self. 
yeah. think they will. Well, I hope so. Otherwise, you know, that uh, uh, they're missing out. <laughs>